0: Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken.
1: Aloha, good morning, welcome to Island Conversations. You may hear Island Conversations on the radio on Sundays on the Big Island of Hawaii on KWXX and on B97-B93, or on Fridays on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. Our healthcare on this island is super important, and we have three hospitals. Today, we'll be talking with Dan Brinkman. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Hilo Medical Center to get an update on one of our island's three main hospitals. Mr. Brinkman first joined Hilo Medical Center in 2007 as the chief nurse executive. He was named regional operating officer in early 2014. Prior to moving to Hilo, Dan was the assistant administrator of interventional cardiology and cardiac surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He earned a Master's in Public Administration from the University of Colorado, and also has degrees in Nursing and Political Science. He resides on the Hamakua Coast with his wife, six daughters, and extended family. Good morning, aloha Dan.
2: Aloha and good morning.
1: Okay, Mr. Brinkman, first, give us the lay of the land for Hilo Medical Center. Where are you, what areas do you serve, what's your target population, how many employees? Just give us some basics about Hilo Medical Center.
2: Okay, so we serve literally the east side of the Big Island. It's uh, pretty much divided down the middle by our mountains, and our population all come here for their care. That's occasionally they'll go to Oahu. So it's about 120,000 people that we serve from a little bit south of Waimea all the way down to Nahilehu, Pahala area. Most of our patients, of course, still come from Hilo. We have Hilo Medical Center here, the main hospital, and then we also have Kau Hospital in Kau and Haleho'ola-Hamakua, which is in Honoka. We have about Almost 1,400 employees now in our three facilities combined, and we're the largest employer in each one of our communities. So uh, what happens with us economically matters, but certainly what we do with health care also has a big impact on our communities.
1: We last spoke with you for our radio program about two years ago, and at that time you were just getting involved in, I believe, affiliating with or taking over Pune Medical Center. What's the status of that?
2: Yes, uh, come to think of it, it has been two years. Well, Pune Community Medical Center is now a rural health clinic of Kau Hospital. So it kind of went through that whole transition. The reason that we arranged it that way is that it makes it part of the critical access hospital system that we have, which made having a clinic in that area uh, more financially sustainable. We're actually expanding that clinic, adding some physicians in space and also some imaging services. So that has been moving along quite nicely.
1: Dan, you mentioned that Pune is now what's called a rural health clinic. What's the implication of that?
2: So a rural health clinic is actually a federal designation. Without getting too into the weeds, the federal government has two main programs designed to support health care in rural areas. So uh, one is a federally qualified health center like Bay Clinic. And the other model is their rural health clinic model, which is very similar but different, funded by a different program, and it's associated with our critical access hospitals. But all of them are set up to give more financial support for health care services that are in areas where there either isn't enough money or there's not enough people to really make it financially viable. In this way, by uh, using this different model, we're able to keep services in a place like Pahoa or down in Kaal and where it actually is very hard to build a, you know, a financially sustainable healthcare business.
1: Hilo Medical Center is part of Hawaii Healthcare Systems, which is a statewide organization which runs several hospitals here on the Big Island, you, Hilo Medical Center, plus Kona Community Hospital. And a few years ago, it was set up so that you would have a local board here in Hilo or here in East Hawaii. Is that arrangement still in place? And tell us about that.
2: The short answer is yes, it's still in place. I unequivocally would say that's been the best decision. Probably our state government has made for neighbor island health care is allowing local communities to have a say in directing planning and managing their health care because when you come to the same place that you are in charge of, you have a personal connection, and I think it makes for much better decision making, and it makes for a better healthcare operation. So it's still in place, we have uh, very reputable, prominent community leaders on our board, and we're glad to have their time and expertise.
1: My observation has been that a lot of times when you get folks from Oahu, they don't really have a concept of how our island is even physically arranged, that we have such a huge space, so much space between hospitals and things like that. So I'm glad that they kept this arrangement. Dan, last time we spoke in 2017, you said that Hilo Medical Center was losing around $40 million a year, which was being subsidized by the state. Tell us what your financial situation is now.
2: So our financial situation is actually uh, improved in a number of key areas. We've collected more dollars, we owe less, we have a little more cash on hand. We've been able to meet all our service needs for our community and so forth. We still require a subsidy. It's pretty complicated the way the state sets up its financing of hospitals and how we pay, for example, for our employees' retirement and benefits. It's expensive, our system but the state generally makes us whole at the end of the day with a subsidy. I could probably talk a long time on it and bore everyone to death, but suffice to say it, that health care and public health here finance is pretty complicated, but we're doing pretty well.
1: You mentioned that you get federal funds for, like, for example, the rural health clinic that is Puna Medical Center, and I think you may also for Kau Hospital. In general, are you getting the kind of federal funding that you expect and that you need?
2: Uh, Yes, we are. The Critical Access Hospital program, which we're trying to make a bigger part of our footprint, is a federal program that impacts all 50 states. I think every state has at least one critical access hospital. And if you follow the rules and meet all their requirements, they pretty much pay you. So we're looking to have more involvement in that side of the business, which will reduce our dependency perhaps on some of our own state-based subsidies and support.
1: When you say critical access hospital, is Hilo Medical Center a critical access hospital or are we talking like Kau Hospital?
2: So Hilo Medical Center is not a critical access hospital. It's what they call a PPS hospital, acute hospital. We're basically paid for services. So if we do an x-ray, we get a fee. If we do a surgery, we get a fee. Critical access hospitals, they do a whole bunch of services over the course of the year. They add up all of what it costs, apply a formula, and then... If they're short, the federal program makes up the difference to make them break even, not to make money, but to keep them operating. A good example of those types of hospitals are Kau Hospital and Honoka Hospital, or excuse me, I'm going by this old name, really is Hale Ho'ola Hamakua, which is up in Honoka, and then also Kohala Hospital on the other side of the island is also a critical access hospital.
1: Okay, and Kohala Hospital is under Kona Community Hospital, right?
2: It's part of the West region, yes, and is associated with Kona Community Hospital.
1: Dan Brinkman, sort of unrelated to Hilo Medical Center specifically, why do hospitals, not just this one, but hospitals across the country lose money? Because this is something that I've read is going on everywhere. Why is that happening? A
2: lot of hospitals do lose money. It's even harder in rural areas. A reason for that often is your payer mix, and that's kind of an industry term for the finances of the people who use your hospital. Are they wealthy? are they underserved and you know have socioeconomic challenges? If they do, usually the hospital will struggle because we have to get payment from that payer mix. We have a lot of Medicaid, which traditionally pays pretty. Poorly, Medicare, which is kind of in the middle, and a relatively small component of commercial insurance, which generally pays pretty well. So for us, that's why we struggle. There are some hospitals in really wealthy areas that do much better, but if you look at hospitals as a whole, it's a hard business to really be profitable in. That's why most hospitals are nonprofit. And many who are non-profit, they actually have other investments or even side businesses that supplement or fund their core business of being a hospital. So, uh, again, it's a challenge.
1: Is Hilo Medical Center looking to be purchased or looking for a merger of some kind as other HHSC hospitals have been, specifically Kona Hospital has always said they'd be interested in a partner? Are you Hilo Medical Center? No. Okay, the LeapFrog Group which is well-respected, gave Hilo Medical Center an A rating in safety in May 2019. That was really pretty cool because, frankly, on this island, that was the best rating of anybody. So congratulations about that. Now, that said, there are a few areas where Hilo Medical Center declined to report, according to LeapFrog, One was having enough qualified nurses, and this sort of goes into a question that I was going to ask you anyway about shortage of healthcare professionals, and on September 9th and 10th, the Honolulu Star advertiser ran both an op-ed and a story about, as usual, the number of medical professionals that we don't have in the state of Hawaii, and one big one was they said nurses are as important as the doctor shortage, just because the nurses are the ones involved generally in the day-to-day care. So what is your situation with nurses and other medical professionals? Do you have enough people? And if not, what's your plan?
2: So in regards to LeapFrog, the way LeapFrog works is that you can either have a subscription with them then you can report on all their indicators or you can decline to and then they'll just pull all your publicly reported data which is what they did and it's good data and they gave us an A. For the things that we wouldn't buy from them and share data like nursing, they said we declined to report, which we did. So actually our nursing staffing is we meet all the state and other you know industry standards. We've been very fortunate here. We don't have a nursing shortage because we've been blessed with two nursing schools on our island, which are community college-based. Uh, UH Community College produces nurses every year and then the University of Hawaii Hilo program produces BSNs and last year we hired twenty seven. This year we're gonna hire twenty four. We just completed interviews with sixty and we made offers to twenty seven. So we are fortunate. Now we trained them for a year because school gives them the background, but nursing has become so specialized. You can't come out of nursing school and go deliver babies or go work in an ER, so we invest in them. But the nice part about it, uh, most of them stay with us a long time. And in our workforce of about 400 nurses, we're about 180 of them have come in from our local colleges through our grad program. We're proud of that, and it's a big win for us and the community.
1: One of the things the Star Advertiser was talking about was trying to encourage local people to go into these professions that we need. And I know that Hilo Medical Center has some programs focused around that. You want to talk a little bit about that?
2: So our foundation, Hilo Medical Center Foundation, They are very active in promoting health careers in the community. They also do a lot of work with loan repayment, other things to make it easier for health professionals to stay in the community. And then um, I just think probably create an environment where people look at health care as something that would be viable for them and a way to have a good job, contribute, and make a good living for their family.
1: Does your hospital need volunteers? Is that a way you can get people in the community involved?
2: We're blessed with plenty of volunteers. We have over 100, I believe, that are, when I say enrolled, but we have to obviously track their work. But they participate in some form or the other. We have a dinner for them every year. And I think every account we've had has been over 100. So uh, we've been blessed with a lot of good folks. Some of them have been volunteering here for 20-plus years.
1: Now, one of the big concerns about hospitalization these days is infections, specifically antibiotic-resistant infections. And when we spoke in 2017, you told me you'd had a program in place for at least seven years to minimize infections. The LeapFrog Group, from the publicly available data, gave you an A rating in the areas of MRSA, C. difficile, infections in blood, urinary tract, and colon surgery. All of that is excellent, but talk about infections in the hospital and what you do do to make sure that they don't occur cuz i mean having an a rating is fabulous
2: you have to catch it almost everywhere the standard of what gets you an a and what's doing a good job is probably a good thing has been raised every year to the point where you really can't have any one is too many basically our approach has been to raise awareness with all our nurses and our physicians so physicians we have like uh, a program that encourages physicians and helps them order the right antibiotics and not too much of it so you don't have resistance we have a huge always pushing hand washing sound like duh But if you think about it, every time a caregiver has an interaction in and out of a room a hundred times a day, they're sanitizing their hands over and over and over and over again, which can be very, you think about it, tedious, but it's so important to not take what one patient has and pass it on to another. So getting that ingrained in our workforce where it's just, you don't think about it. They always are hitting that gel or washing their hands and you couldn't even ask them if they did because they're just doing it. That's one of the most important things to make sure that you don't get people sick when they come into the hospital to be treated. There's a number of other best practices when it comes to say, speaking very lay person, putting things in people's body. You generally want to avoid doing that. If you can, so we try not to put IVs in any more than we have to, or catheters. And when we do, we try to almost go to extreme to make it a very sterile and very clean type of procedure so we don't introduce anything into your body. A lot of infection prevention is not complex science. It's doing it the right way every single time. And if you do that, and most importantly, you get your caregivers to buy into the idea of doing it, you'll keep your patients safer.
1: And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations, and I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Today and next week, we're talking with Dan Brinkman, the Chief Executive Officer of Hilo Medical Center, to make sure we all understand what the capabilities and challenges are of one of our island's three major hospitals. Before we get back to today's discussion with Dan Brinkman, a word from another major employer on Hawaii Island, KTA Superstores, which has nearly 900 employees.
0: KTA, local and fresh, means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local, so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA.
1: And now back to Hilo Medical Center Chief Executive Dan Brinkman. For many people, the first and sometimes the only contact with a hospital is through the emergency department. So give us an update on your emergency department.
2: It's crazy busy. (laughs) So uh, we had our biggest day here about a couple weeks ago, so 182 patients in one day. Since I've been here, I remember our busy day was we broke 100, and that was... 10 years ago, and it's just steadily ratcheted itself up there. we almost broke 50,000 visits this year. You know, it's just been a steady increase. It used to go up four or five percent a year. Thankfully, it's slowed to about one or two, but consistently still very busy. We still see a lot of patients in our emergency room that get basic or primary care that I think if we make more progress with developing primary care clinics and making sure we don't have that shortage, we should have less of those types of visits in our ER. A ER remains a place where everybody has to come first, care uh, what happens to you or if you have to you know, have some crazy special surgery or something, you still will come here and get stabilized before you leave. And little known fact, we only ship out about two, three percent of all our visits, people think, oh, you fly everything out. We fly almost nothing out anymore.
1: Well, I'm going to ask you more about that. If someone comes to the emergency room, how long are they waiting on average? Do you know?
2: To get seen, you're depending on the time of day, somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes we'll get you in. It has ranged in that range for the last four or five years, so I think that's pretty consistent. Your time is around two to two and a half hours if we're going to discharge you. If you're going to be admitted, you'll probably be in the ER for about three and a half to four hours before you go up to the floor. There are some days, though, when we're completely full, especially during flu season, you may stay in the ER longer, and we've struggled with that at times. But those are averages. Sometimes it's like no wait at all, and then there's sometimes some where it's longer, but that's kind of our median time for those types of stays.
1: Several years ago, you actually upgraded your emergency department and so tell us how big it is, how many beds you have, that kind of thing. Our
2: emergency room—it's it, been a few years, but it's still in good shape. We have 28 beds. You know. Uh, Culture's changed. The use has gone up. We've had to put in some security precautions. Like now we, we want and check everyone before they come in, visitors and even our patients, for you know, the safety of our, I don't know if they're really guests, of our visitors and patients and, score staff and others. And I think it helps put people's mind at ease so they can focus on getting people better. That has been a change for us. But our ER facility has held up very well.
1: You mentioned that you are transporting people out, I presume, to Oahu or Maui less often. Tell us about that. Under what circumstances would somebody have to be transported, and how does that actually occur?
2: So for transport, probably the number one reason to transport is types of head injury, not stroke and so forth, but head injury We don't have a neurosurgeon on island for any of the hospitals, and there's only actually three or four in the state, and so they either go to Oahu, or actually we have been sending some to Maui, who I think over the last eight months, year or so, has a neurosurgeon that does take some cases from us. We'll transport every now and then some, I would call them, unusual cases. I'm trying to think of a a good example. Often it has to do with the brain, someone who's had a certain type of stroke that could use a lab where they actually take the stroke out. There are a few places, a couple of hospitals that do that in the state. And only a certain unique patient presentation will say, oh, yeah, let's transport them. The way they transport, uh, ambulance picks them up, takes them to the airport, fix swing and flies them. We don't operate a helicopter out. It really didn't work for us. But that's pretty much the standard process.
1: So you mentioned heart and stroke care. I want to talk about that because I think that Heart attacks or strokes are one of the main reasons people come to the hospital. So tell us what Hilo Medical Center capability is right now.
2: I'm glad you asked that. We're excited about our progress with our cardiology program. I think I would mentioned in previous interviews that that was a big priority for us. So we have three, and actually starting in a couple months, our fourth cardiologist will be here practicing, and we also have a nurse practitioner working with them. Three of them are interventional cardiologists, so... Beginning January 1, we offered what you would call interventional cardiac services for heart attacks. We started that on a partial basis in January, and in July we went to full-time, 24-7. So when you come in with a heart attack, we take you to the cath lab, open you up, place a stent, and even for a lot of folks, send you home the next day if you get here in time. So we have, over the years, averaged between 60 and 70 Big, hard, you know what you call the big one, come to our ER every year. It's been a pretty stable number. And I could uh, make a really good case that probably half of them died, and half of those people died needlessly. And we should probably get that number down to maybe only a couple a year versus 30 or 40 people every year. So, very excited about that, and I don't want to overspeak, but our goal is to keep that program viable indefinitely.
1: Well, so what you're saying is because you can put in a stent right here at Hilo Medical Center, that means you didn't have to transport people, and it also means that they lived. Am I un- understanding that correctly?
2: You said it perfectly. That's the big thing. I was sharing some of this results with our employees. and. Bottom line says, why do this? Well, people live. There are actually very few procedures that you can do that you really go, well, did it make a difference to tie it back to individual? This one's the consequences dire and the fix is very straightforward. You have a blockage, you open it, people walk out the next day. You don't open it, they'll die. I mean, it really is one of those things. And so there's so many other things the program delivers for cardiac care, preventing that from happening in the first place. We do a lot of elective interventions now. We manage people's heart disease so they don't get to that point. But preventing the heart attack is like the big thing. It's the big thing. And when you're having that that crushing feeling or your family's bringing their loved one to the emergency room. By the way, call 911. Don't do that. But if you are, it makes a huge difference because you'll lose your loved one otherwise.
1: How about strokes? What's your situation with strokes? Because I understand there's some medications that can be given if you get someone to the hospital via 911 fast enough.
2: We're a certified primary stroke center. So we certified through the Joint Commission, which certifies all the hospitals in the country that take Medicare money. They make sure that you do all the best things you can do for stroke, including what you're talking about, which is giving that medication called TPA. And if you come within this three-hour window, it can give you this medication and it will often dissolve your clot and either stop your stroke from happening or reduce some of the severity of it. Um, it's, not a silver bullet or a perfect fix. Sometimes people have a bad outcome, but it's usually 1% or 2%. And most people go, you know what, I'd rather have the chance of not having a lifetime of stroke dehabilitation and fix me up, doc. So we try to, with the right patients, really encourage giving this medication. And most importantly, people recognizing the signs and symptoms of stroke and not convincing themselves it's going to go away tomorrow. You need to come to the emergency room. It's pretty easy to diagnose to do a CT. You're either having it or you're not.
1: Dan, tell us, you know, people should know, how do I know if I'm having a stroke? How does anybody know if they or a loved one or a friend is having a stroke?
2: There's a handy acronym called FAST. That's how you recognize the signs and symptoms of stroke. Often people's face will droop on one side or the other. Their arm might have weakness in it, either left or right. Their speech may become a little slurred. Then when you see those things happening, you know you have time, short period of time to get in, and then that treatment can work for you. If you wait too long, there's not a lot we can do, so be fast about it.
1: Well, one thing that I've heard from the EMTs from Hawaii County Fire Department is really the best thing to do is call 911 because they can actually diagnose and begin whatever they need to do in the ambulance.
2: You're exactly right. You want to call 911. One of the things, if they see all those signs and symptoms, they'll call the emergency room ahead of time. We'll get the CT scanner ready. We will have what they call a stroke activation, which makes sure everyone is there ready to treat you. And if you're short on time, we can make the most of it.
1: I read in the paper some months ago that there was some funding in the legislature that was supposed to come in for your interventional cardiac program and for a time it was stalled. Did you get that money or did you not get that money? And either way, how does that affect you?
2: Unfortunately at the last minute that uh, arrangement kind of fell apart. I know Senator Keheli did his best and uh, we weren't able to get that funding. We did get some funding the previous year our funding for programs is we try to do it in a combination of ways, using the money we generate from our services, our subsidy we talked about earlier, and then sometimes we get an earmark, which was what we were asking for for Senator Kelly. But when we put together a program, we try not to be dependent on any one thing. Otherwise, we, maybe we wouldn't ever get anything done. So our program is moving along. Hopefully this session will get a little more help with it so we can do even more for our community.
1: Dan, you've mentioned imaging. Tell us what imaging is, why it's important, and what the situation is at Hilo Medical Center.
2: Imaging is a catch-all term for all different ways to look inside the body without cutting on people, really. Today, more and more of care require some highly technical imaging, like uh, CT scans. Some people call that, they make a joke, that it's the fifth vital sign. Every time you come to the emergency room, we have to do a CT to see what's going on with you. And there's a little truth to it, because it's gotten so good, doctors don't have to guess anymore. Imaging has evolved to a point where our doctors rely on it to make accurate diagnoses, to speed treatment. It's not so much a guessing game as before. So the expectations of the type of imaging you have have really increased. Ultrasound, x-ray, there's magnets like MRIs, there's nuclear medicine, it's all different kinds of things, and we call that all imaging. Down to your basic, did you get an X-ray, okay? As our emergency room has gotten busier, we've needed to have more and more of it available. We have two CT scanners that we use for almost, well, it seems like almost every visit. The reason we have two is as our ER has grown, the demand on the CT machines has grown, so we have a very advanced 640-slice CTs, one of the best in the state, and then we also have a very good kind of our workhorse that does most of our CT. We also have upgraded our MRI. We have one that was over 20 years old. We have a new one that should do its first exam here, hopefully by October 1. Almost fully installed, just going through its final testing. State of the art. We also have a very good angio suite here that's a couple of years old that we do interventional cardiac work with. Over the last Well, two and a half years, and we should be done in probably another eight months, we will have replaced all our imaging equipment. So MRI, two new CTs, we hope to replace a nuclear camera our ultrasound. The last piece is to a fully digital x-ray. Really all new stuff. So how does that impact our patient or our community? When you come in, you're getting like the best technologically, and it should improve the speed at which you get treated, and it also should help the diagnosis be more accurate.
1: And with that, we're going to take a pause in our conversation with Dan Brinkman. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Hilo Medical Center and pick this up again next week. We recorded our interview in Dan Brinkman's office at Hilo Medical Center and next week we're going to talk more about physician recruitment, cancer care, the family residency clinic and more at Hilo Medical Center. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. I really appreciate you listeners being with us. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to email me at Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-Y at kwxx.com until next week and another island conversations please let's all live and drive with aloha Ahoi ho.
0: thank you for listening to island conversations with sherry bracken available anytime at kwxx.com we welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.